Hello, Cachimbonas. Welcome to episode 51 of season five of Radio Cachimbona. Radio Cachimbona is an abolitionist podcast that audio archives state repression and fierce migrant resistance in the Southern Arizona borderlands and breaks down case law and politics from a leftist perspective. It's a first-generation professional whose parents are Salvadoran immigrants. Yvette prioritizes uplifting the voices and histories of Central Americans. This was a very special lit review that I did back in season three of the lit review. And it was a great one because I did it with friend of the podcast and badass Salvi Latina lawyer Yesenia Medrano. And we talked about the book To Rise in Darkness, Revolution, Repression, and Memory from 1920 to 1932. In this particular episode, we discussed only the first three chapters because this was a very, very dense history. We discussed the Salvadoran elite's complete disconnect from the material realities of the majority of the working class at the turn of the 20th century, the government's fear-mongering over communism and how that was utilized as justification for indigenous ethnocide in Western El Salvador. And we discussed how the mestizaje discourse was employed by the Salvadoran government to erase the presence of indigenous and Afro-descendant people in the country. Like I mentioned in the last episode, I'm going to be releasing a lot more episodes that were previously Patreon exclusive, including this lit review. I do think this content that Yesenia and I recorded needs to reach the thousands of listeners that listen to Radio Cachimbona and needs to be heard by more people. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much to you all. You know who you are. Thank you so much to the Cachimbona listeners. Thank you to those who, after hearing this, will become patrons. Thank you to everyone that has left the podcast a five-star rating and review. It really helps us find new listeners. Thank you to Yesenia for being such a prominent person in the Lit Review circle. I love and appreciate you all so much. I hope that you all enjoy this episode and learn a bit more about this darker period of El Salvador's history. Hello, everyone. I am really excited to invite back one of my favorite Salvi women lawyers, Yesenia. She's been on the podcast many a time. Actually, I was looking at the episode statistics and my interview with you, Keep Your Heart Soft, is one of the most popular Radio Cachibona episodes. Oh, so, <laughs> Yes, we're welcoming back a favored Cachibona guest. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> so for this lit review, we're going to be discussing the text Rise in Darkness, Revolution, Repression, and Memory in El Salvador from 1920 to 1932. It is written by Jeffrey Gold and Aldo Laria Santiago. And there's also an informant and a fixer on the ground named Reynaldo Patriz who connects them to folks in El Salvador, who's not named as an author, but I think is such an important contributor to the work that should be named as well. And yeah, before diving into the text, I just wanted to do a quick little check-in with you, Yesenia, and ask how you are and what you've done this week for self-care. Great question. (laughs) I'm doing okay right now. I have been feeling pretty tired recently, which I think is common right now for Mm -hmm. everyone. Let's see. So today's Monday. Um, <laughs> over the weekend, I I went for a run on Saturday night, which was really good. Um, oh, nice. I didn't. I did unfortunately have to work this weekend, but I went for a run, and I also was very intentional about reading this book, <laughs> and that was nice and relaxing. Yay. Thank you so much for taking the time to read this book, because I know it's a dense one. It's not exactly a fun read either. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I think we talked about this when we were reviewing, oh my gosh, I can't remember the name of the book, but it was poetry, and I was just talking about how it's just such a shift to move from, like, reading case law to basically mm-hmm. I felt like this was a history book. Yeah, definitely. And it, it's also it's also really poignant political analysis. So there's and 
there's a lot of, I feel like, because it was an academic text, there was a lot of words from communist theory that I had to keep asking, like I had to revisit my understandings of them, like proletariat, for example, or semi-proletariat, all the various words that <laughs> they espoused in the text. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I will say, though, that that is one of the things that I love about the Lit Review is that it allows me to read texts that are so different from what I spend every day reading. And I just, I think that your imagination, it's lessened significantly when all you're reading is judicial opinions. Absolutely. Yeah. Cool, yeah. I'm I'm doing pretty good as well. Just also very tired. Like I'm sleeping a lot. I tweeted this the other day about how I'm sleeping eight hours or more every day, but I'm still hella tired throughout the day. Um, yeah, and I think it's just the... I mean, I know I have sleep apnea and I have a CPAP machine, but I think that the fatigue is more related to the uncertainty of when COVID's going to end and also mm-hmm. a lot of uncertainty around what's going to happen in November. I feel like a lot of people are really feeling that anxiety and anxiety does take a physical toll on your body. So sure. yeah, been trying to conserve my energy so that I appropriately so that I can get through my daily tasks and also my Radio Cachimbona tasks as well because <laughs> that's, that's super necessary, especially as a person with depression. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you are able to jump into sleep. Oh, um, yeah, girl. Nothing's taking my sleep away from me. No. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> <laughs> I, that's one thing I need to be more intentional about. Yeah, honestly, sleep is a game changer for real. Like, even, yeah, mental health wise and energy wise. I think it's it's a thing that should be prioritized at all times if you're trying to put your best self forward. Definitely, especially right now. Yes. Okay, so do you want to get into the book now? Sounds good. <laughs> okay. So the... The book uh, focuses on the, it's focused on 1920 to 1932 because it focuses on the decade prior to La Matanza in 1932, which was an indigenous ethnocide in Western Salvador. And the book details the politics, the labor organizing, and the structure of the economy and changes to it that all led up to the 1932 Matanza. As the preface starts out by comparing and contrasting the events of the 1932 ethnocide that were narrated to Reynaldo Patrice, who's an informant of the study by his own father. And then with him witnessing almost the exact same Thing happening in 1980 with the military occupation of El Carizal, where army soldiers led by a hooded man were dragging someone through the dirt. Both were related to communist fear-mongering on the part of the Salvadorian government and the U.S. Embassy. I was really struck by that image of a hooded man dragging people through the street because that parallels actually what we saw in Portland with the private unmarked cars being used to kidnap Mm -hmm. people. And I wanted to ask if you saw other examples of authoritarian rule in the book that resonated with how Trump has run the presidency. Yeah. Well, I think so many Americans would say, I mean, I think still to this day, United Statesians, I should say, are truly convinced of the durability of this democratic project and particularly with how much fascism has accelerated even in these last few months under Trump. I hope that that United Statesians are 
a little bit on guard about the unraveling of the electoral processes that have been put in place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think, I guess, like, thinking about electoral processes, thinking about that just kind of, like, throughout the chapters that we read, they're talking about... Are you talking about the local elections where people would have their guns pointed at their head and told who to vote for? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's definitely one example. And then, I mean, I think also just, like, there was some part talking about, like, kind of, I think they were basically talking about, like, apathy and, like, folks not really being that invested in elections. Yeah, I also feel like generally it, it felt like the there wasn't, like... I think they did a really good job of explaining how there wasn't a centralized government in El Salvador in the way, it, it, like, in a way that resembles the strong federal powers in the U.S. It did it, and they outlined how the electoral system never really became formalized or legitimized because. During this period, there were the presidency was essentially decided by a series of coups, and mm-hmm. they. I, I thought it was interesting that he talked about how the there was this like capitalist class, mostly people who were owners of coffee plantations, who actually didn't care to become involved in politics because right. they could they could do behind the scenes dealings with whichever politicians decided to be the face of the government but they still effectively felt like they got everything that they wanted and even though they weren't publicly visible as leaders of El Salvador they were exerting significant influence on the economy and were actually creating basically a monopoly where a very small right. amount of people owned the majority of coffee plantations. Right. I think that could definitely be a parallel, just like the the fact that like a very small handful of families basically controlled all the wealth. Mm-hmm. Um, and the essentially the country, and like if you think about what's happening in the U.S. right now, I mean, especially with COVID, and like who's who's profiting from that, and who has the power to change anything is people with wealth, and what exactly are they doing with that wealth? Yeah, I I was really struck by a quote with somebody says I think. I think this might have been an observer of late <laughs> late 19th century El Salvador, but they were saying <laughs> they, they were saying that that they felt an air of of remnants of the Spanish conquest because even even in in societies of extreme inequality, where the they, the person talked about how there's still some obligation that the ruling class feels to, sorry, yeah, that the ruling class feels towards the working class in like just enough so that they want to stop the the working classes from revolting. And they pointed out that in the, the Salvadorian elite seemed to not even give a fuck about that. And they they seemed like incredibly out of touch. And I, I felt like I was picturing like Salvadorian great Gatsby's. Yes. Yeah. Sending their children to school in Europe. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yes. They talked about how this, the elite of El Salvador are, they were characterized by being transnational in the sense of a lot of people sending their kids to European or American schools. And and then they also they also talked about how that the authors explained that that could be a part of the reason why the Salvadoran elites 
didn't really espouse a strong Salvadorian nationalism in particular. They kind of, they really reveled and, and um, saw themselves as different because of that access that they had to other countries and specifically to Europe. I think one other parallel to the question that you asked, not that I marked this, of how this was on page 85. Basically, I mean, this was all throughout the history of the Civil War, but like the fear of communism Mm -hmm. was so great that any form of protest, and this is in 1931, where they're talking about any form of protest was like seen as an act of communism and had to be like shut down. And I think that that is kind of like a parallel to Trump's (laughs) U.S. right now, where it's just any opposition, like he has to shut down and he like is doing and he's doing that by any means possible by even openly saying that he'll not fund the post office. To right. because the elections can potentially hurt him. Yeah, I definitely agree that the the one a thread of this time period in terms of Salvadoran governments and Trump is for sure the silencing of dissent, and then also the just like how powerful government narratives can be, particularly when it's an authoritarian government that's trying to cover up its own fascist actions. Something that I thought was really interesting was that the author talked about how, like, one of, this is one of the reasons why Leonardo Patrice was such an important interlocutor, because he noticed that there were, that when, during the oral histories, there were people who would not admit to their family's participation in the 1930 unrest, 1931, 1932 unrest. But once, like, they started picking up on this and started questioning and pushing back more, they found out that through these individual interviews that there was a suppression of indigenous agency that the military had promulgated. And... Um, it was through these interviews that it kind of came out like, oh, wait, no, like my family members actually were a part of that. They were resisting. And I think it's important to point out how an authoritarian government like El Salvador can can instill so much fear in people that even 50 years after the fact, you're scared to admit that you that you or your family members participated in that uprising. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think this is probably the tenth time I've mentioned Reynaldo Patrice, but his his agenda was to have the survivors of the 1932 and 1980 attacks in Isalco speak publicly in conversation for therapeutic reasons, but also for political reasons. Um, And he felt this way because the right-wing Arena Party had a rightist narrative that um, in Isalco, they would say at the beginning of every campaign speech where they were there, here's where we buried communism. And I I think, I thought that this counter-narrative was so important, um, basically just for the reasons why we were just saying. So wanted to ask you about any any understandings that were shifted for you in comparison to what you might have heard growing up about El Salvador. Well, I think, I mean, most of what, I think the, what, the history that I learned about El Salvador came from my parents who, my dad came to the U.S. fleeing the Civil War like many other people, um, and his uncle was assassinated for being a union organizer in a sugar mill. Mm. So, and then when my dad came to the United States and he stayed in Tucson where the sanctuary movement kind of was born. And Mm -hmm. so him and my mom were uh, active in attending protests and 
Um, my mom was active organizing in support of the sanctuary movement. So I think the history that I learned based on from my parents is very much similar to like the struggles that we read here in this book. Hmm. I think one one thing that kind of threw me off is that there was no there was no like one central actor that they focused on as being kind of like the leading person in any one like uprising or I guess just like in the uprising overall or organizing overall, you know, I think we hear a lot about Fabundo Mati because he's like the most famous mm-hmm. person. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the political party named after him. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was actually really surprised that his name was just kind of like thrown in there without anything else. I was just kind of like, oh yeah, he's like, you know, a well-known organizer. Um, <laughs> but they really, <laughs> they really, they really did a good job of like just kind of talking about how this organizing was happening across the country based on like a shared sentiment of like unfair labor standards and practices. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that, but I agree that that also is part of the reason why the book is a bit dense and hard to follow because we are used to people-centered narratives. But I think that this is probably a more accurate telling of it because I I really reject the the glorification of particular activists and holding them up on a pedestal as the symbol of a movement. Like that was definitely done with MLK. And I think it can be dangerous because it becomes too easy for the government to take away that person and then stifle a movement. And I I think what's pretty inspiring about a lot of the events that were described in the book is that, I mean, these uprisings were pretty messy, right? Like, yes, there were people for organizing unions in the cities, but, and then who, and also went to organize uh, people in the haciendas and the plantations. But also, like, some of the uprisings were spontaneous. And I think it's important to point out like how, how poor people were and like the, their material realities that made mm-hmm. it so that like, even without a coordinated political public education campaign, people still wanted to revolt because they had an innate sense of injustice and the, because the realities that they were suffering spoke for themselves. There, there is nothing to say other than we need redistribution of wealth and land. Right. I think that was another thing that I guess I didn't think about as much was just, I mean, there was a lot going on in surrounding countries in terms of like similar acts of <laughs> protesting and demanding redistribution of wealth and land. But I guess I just never thought of really how that affected or how that could affect El Salvador and just kind of like uh, folks coming in from the Caribbean and Nicaragua or even Salvadorans supporting folks in Nicaragua. Yeah, I was really heartened to to see that. And as I study more of... Central American history and realized how much the nation states' borders have changed arbitrarily over time, and how, like, there used to be a united Central American Republic for a period of time. And reading about, like, the Sandinistas, and now learning more about this time period in El Salvador, I've realized that cross solidarity between the Central American countries is actually a constant thing throughout history and has been a really important part of anti-imperialism of, of mm-hmm. kicking people out. Like in the the season finale of season two, I interviewed the professors of U.S. Central Americans, the anthology who talked about how William Walker was this Nashville man who just decided one day that he wanted to colonize Nicaragua. The quote unquote liberals of Nicaragua invited him to the country. And then he, for a period of years, a short period of time, 
he tried to be the president of Nicaragua and it was it was Nicaraguans in conjunction with our with armies from other surrounding countries that were eventually able to oust him and we saw various examples of that in just even in this time period as well Reynaldo spoke about how the existence of everyone he knew had been shaped by the 1932 Matanza, and yet no one possessed more than a fragmentary understanding of what had occurred. I felt like this typifies the Salvadorian experience. Do you agree? I don't think I've asked very many Salvadorans about the Matanza, but I think I agree in the context of like even just the civil war in El Salvador Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. and I think kind of like what you were saying before where people still are afraid to talk about the history of El Salvador because for whatever reason but I do yeah I agree that people just carry a lot of fear with them because of what happened yeah, I was really moved by this Salvadoran artist named Cracky Rodriguez, who has described, he's described it as zones of silence. Like these, the, these things that we're silent about that actually structure our lives. And so dialoguing and actually, and you and I, even in this conversation, unpacking this history that we hadn't been taught is, I think, a really powerful act of resistance, especially because the Salvadoran government has intentionally engaged in disinvestment from public education and also um, has actively puts out narratives about what what occurred in these uprisings. And so it's, it's really critical to uncover what really happened behind all of that state propaganda. How were you... Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead, go ahead. I mean, I was just going to say, I think, yeah, even, like, just remembering, like, visiting El Salvador. (laughs) I mean, I guess visiting El Salvador for the first time as an adult when I was 18 years old. You know, I feel like I... I was really interested in the history at that time because of everything that my parents had told me. And I just kind of was super naive and went in thinking that I could like have a conversation with my grandma who lives there about it. (laughs) And like just assumed because of my dad's family's history that they would be super liberal and like want Mm -hmm. to talk about things and and when I got there I like noticed the colonia that my Grandma Lisbon had like all of the arena propaganda plastered up. And so I was just like, oh, like, I guess I shouldn't be like super radical and out there about what my political views are, <laughs> or like wanting to talk loudly about the Civil War. But I think, yeah, it's just, it, it's really hard to, like, you can see the history in El Salvador when you're in El Salvador, but it's also like there is that silence because it's like an elephant in the room. Like people don't talk about it, even though there's like that, um, I can't remember, what is the Parque Nacional where they have all the names Mm. of the people who died in the war. Mm. It's just like these obvious things that are in the country, but at the mm-hmm. same time, we're just like not really going to talk about it. I oh, there was this one experience where I met somebody who was attending the is it the UCLA? Mm-hmm. The UCLA. UCLA? UCLA, you mean? Yeah, Universidad yeah, mm-hmm. and you know, that's where the massacre happened. Of was it the Jesuit? Jesuit Oscar Romero. Yeah, the yeah, my aunt and uncle were students at the time at the UCA when that happened. They weren't on campus the literal day of, but yeah, they yeah. Well, oh, sorry, go ahead. I no, I was just gonna say like I met somebody who attended that university, and I was like, oh, like can you show me where this, you know, this happened, and like there's like a memorial for them, and they're like, oh yeah, like I've never even visited that site before. <laughs> 
And I was just like, what? Like, you attend this university? But anyways, maybe because, like, I went into El Salvador naive and, like, wanting to know the history, it's similar to, like, being here in the United States, right? Like, so many terrible things have happened here. And, like, our education system, public education doesn't teach us about that, right? Like, I didn't learn about Japanese internments until I went to, until I was an undergrad, I think. So I guess that's, like, that erasure is definitely not isolated. Yeah, definitely. Agreed. How aware were you previously to reading this book about how large a role anti-communist sentiments played out in in Salvadorian politics? Very aware. Mm. Now I like really <laughs> for some reason. <laughs> yeah, and so how did you how did you understand the the party's role in in the uprising versus people being motivated by their indigeneity and wanting access to land? Well, I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, I think that the book kind of talked about it separately and that, like, for example, as we were saying before, people were motivated to revolt because of their, like, living conditions. Like, they just knew that they could not continue to survive under under their current living situation. And I think that that was just deemed communism because people in other countries were spreading, like, Marxist-Leninist theory. And also because it's... I, I just, like, I think that, especially in El Salvador, this is where I, learning about the history of El Salvador is where I learned that communism was very much attached to people in poverty and that anyone, or at least what I was taught was essentially, like, anyone who was poor and didn't agree with the government was automatically labeled a communist just by having that status. And I think that that kind of carried over to indigenous folks and and then obviously people who identified with a certain set of politics. Yeah. I, I appreciated how the authors complicated these ideas and said that even though other scholars, other scholars, oh, um, have either talked about the communist organizing or have explained everything as being about indigeneity. And I appreciate how they complicated even like how it's not possible, first of all, to separate those two things because there were indigenous people in the communist party. And then also I appreciated how he pointed out that because of the ongoing state repression of indigenous people in El Salvador, by this time period in 1920 and 1932, people already had a spectrum of identification for their indigenous identity because of mm-hmm. the constant repression. Like he talked about how there's, you know, it's just, it's just a very complicated question. There could be people whose parents would for sure have identified as indigenous. And then because of repression, because of people trying to survive, their children might not have identified as indigenous. Mm-hmm. And and also it's it's just important to point out that, you know, like this is an, a North American, these are two North American academics who are writing about this. And even even I think it's just important. I appreciated that they historicized the term indigenous itself and talked about how people at the time would have had complicated understandings and relationships to indigeneity. And it's not as simple to say someone was indigenous or not, because during the 1920s, actually, the was the emergence of the mestizaje narrative that was supposed to, whose intention was to erase 
Indigenous people from the future of the nation state. And by kind of caricaturizing and romanticizing them as figures of the past that have informed Salvadorian culture, but that will not be part of its modern progress. And I just really appreciate that historicization because I think the question of... I just think I think it's it's important to recognize all of the ways in which the Salvadoran government intentionally has tried to cut people off from indigenous culture. Yeah, I think yeah, cutting people off and then also like being selective. I mean, I think this is across like anywhere, right? Being selective about when it's okay to identify as indigenous. Mm-hmm. Um, what was your what was your understanding of the association of communism with different groups of people or how that impacted this movement? I didn't understand that it was that or know that it was communism in particular that was being fear-mongered, even though I probably could have been should have been able to suss that out based on how the US has treated communism. Like I was surprised by kind of like really people's hardline stances in regards to communism. Just like for transparency, I do not identify as a communist because I don't particularly like the, like the, <laughs> okay, let, let me, let me backtrack. <laughs> I guess so. I noticed there's a part where they, they're describing how, communism and worker rights and worker control were being popularized in newspaper media at the time and that they were pretty hardline communists. Like they even had, they had like really, really sharp critiques about democratic socialists, for example, Mm -hmm. which then it just kind of made me want to revisit my understanding of communism versus socialism because I'm definitely opposed to authoritarian communism and that juxtaposition where they were criticizing democratic socialists, which I think if I am going to adopt any kind of model of governance, it would be that. But because, yeah, I, I just personally identify as an anarchist, so I'm not committed to the creation of a communist nation state. And I also I thought that the that conflating communists with indigenous folks was actually counterintuitive because I would have thought that indigeneity would have been characterized as in part as resistance to the creation of the Salvadorian nation state. So it is just interesting to me that well, but then there were indigenous communist activists. So there were indigenous Salvadorian people who felt like a communist form of governance would be the best form. I guess I'm just surprised because I maybe I'm projecting my own politics onto that. I don't know. <laughs> well, I actually I actually thought that it talks that these few chapters talked less about the effects of communism on, or I guess just like communist theory, like on basically like motivating people to organize. I think that they really focused on just like what people were living and experiencing and that being like the main motive of wanting to organize or gather, even if I think they talked about like somebody coming in and and realizing like, okay, like people are organizing, but they're not, or people are getting together, but they're not actually organizing for any type of change. Mm -hmm. And I think that people were just getting together around like the common thread of being able to survive and, and trying to come together on, on what to do about that rather than studying communist theory (laughs) and being motivated by that. Yeah, I, I think that I agree. I They pointed out that people were, that I because I feel like the analysis that I was reading that, that folks had was anti-capitalist a lot of times. And I don't mm-hmm. think that anti-capitalist is necessarily always communist. Like I noticed that 
in a lot of the, the newspaper articles that they pointed to in the it's kind of like there's this middle intellectual middle class intellectual class that was pushing that was pushing for redistribution of wealth and power from employees to workers but and I, and I think that that was a lot of the rhetoric that was used even like I think across people organizing Latinos and indigenous people alike and yeah again I think that it just like this is kind of why it just makes me want to study these theories a bit more yeah yeah I think I think that I definitely agree that just because you're anti-capitalist does not mean that you're communist but I think that that label communism was just seen as something so bad that threatened Mm -hmm. like that basically threatened all governments and so that was just kind of what how people were labeled as a threat. Right. Like the label was used really for anybody who was left of center, basically. And right. used to demonize anybody left of center, including the the people who were arguing for more modest civil reforms. Right. The the CBistas, I think they were called. Were you aware of the word Ladino being used in Salvador? I wasn't prior to reading this. I had heard Ladino used in Guatemala in that context, but did had never heard it used in Salvador and wanted to ask what your thoughts were on that. I think I had heard it used before. I don't know if I thought very much about it. It's, did you what were your thoughts about it? It's <laughs> It made me think about race in Central America and the, like, Ladino, I think, is synonymous with mestizo. You know, it's part mm-hmm. of this, this narrative that a quote-unquote new race was born out of Spanish colonization of Latin America and the, um, as such is committed to erasing indigenous and Afro-descendiente people in Central America and it, it, I think I, I'm just, I'm really caught up on, I've been caught up lately about how I should personally identify because I am very light skinned. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of light skins are going through right now. <laughs> 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 um, because to, to ex- I cannot accept the mestizaje narrative. And I also, you know, can can be aware of the ways in which the government has repressed indigenous identity, but also have to recognize the ways in which the fact that my family spoke Spanish, was Catholic, and lived in San Salvador, a city, were a lot of those these are a lot of these like quote unquote mestizo characteristics that grant people privilege in Salvador. And so, and it's like, if I don't, I, I don't, I'm not going to buy into this Rasa Cosmica shit talking about how there's a new race. <laughs> and so if there's not a new race, I mean, that must mean that I'm white. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so I'm just, I just, I struggle with that and kind of seeing, I, don't, I guess, because I have less personal experiences in Guatemala I um and having mostly read about Guatemala in academic texts with the, that use the word Ladino, I always pictured of a, a very white. I pictured a, a white man being a Ladino oppressing indigenous people, and I need to really come to terms with the fact that actually I would be a Ladino in El Salvador under mm-hmm. under these definitions and it creeped me out that Ladino is also very close to Latinx and that more and more we're hearing from Black and Indigenous Latinxes that Latinidad as an identity marker has failed them and actually just erases them 
And it's like seeing the striking similarities between how these people were labeled in this historical context at the turn of the 20th century really makes me doubt the Latinx project. And I'm I'm not like fully prepared to identify as white. <laughs> Mm-hmm. because I've never lived in this world as a white woman, but I am, but it's just, it is called, I think, I think uh, what I need to be cognizant of is how race plays out for me in Latin America as composed to the United States, as compared to the United States, because mm-hmm. I, I actually do, I actually have a grasp of how I am treated and viewed as white in Latin America, especially because of my Americanness. Mm-hmm. You know, like when I went to Mexico most recently, like I was called a güera, and you know, mm-hmm. this like not this not an isolated incident. And so, yeah, that's what the word Latino brings up for me. Yeah, I don't. I definitely didn't. I didn't think about it, but I think yeah, I definitely agree with your analysis <laughs> and. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right that a lot of light-skinned Latinas, Latinos, Latinx are having this discussion and these thoughts. I think it's hard because race is so contextual, it and it does it. So right, so that's why it's relevant that I'm treated one way in Mexico, one way in Salvador, and one way here. Like I just cannot be living in Arizona and call myself white because these motherfuckers have racially profiled me. <laughs> Right. Okay. So that that's where I'm I'm like struggling right now because yeah, I just like you know, I I can't call myself white in Arizona, but moving to Washington, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. I realize <laughs> that uh sometimes I can pass. And I think that that's just like eye opening for me. And especially right now, thinking about how, how like my identity, how I have identity identified in the past, like what that actually means, and and why I believe that I should identify that way. Mm-hmm. You mean as a woman of color? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know, especially because the history of that term is like black women used it as a like as a way of opening solidarity to non-black women of color, and the fact that it's like been co-opted such that like I've seen the term white woman of color to refer to white passing Latinxes, mm-hmm. and that we that's we we can't do that. That doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. That's not a thing. And that deviates so far from centering blackness in the conversation of race. And that's when you know it's wrong. <laughs> mm-hmm. Or I've seen light skin person of color. <laughs> that's mm-hmm. a lot. Uh yeah. I mean and it's like but it's yeah. It is difficult because race is at, is at once something completely constructed and something that also has very real material effects on people's lives, but it's constantly in flux. And so it's, I think it is, it is a, it's probably, I, I see, yeah, I, I think that is why it's difficult for light-skinned people to understand themselves on the spectrum because there are also phenotypical features that we do associate with indigeneity or with blackness. I'm not ascribing to a biological model of race, but I'm speaking to these, these unspoken, understood things that characterize how race plays out in the world. And like that's another reason cuz that's another reason why I've hesitated to identify as white because I have a very round face and a wide nose and these are not european features. Those are indigenous features. And so I I think we can hold all of that complexity through recognizing that race changes based on where you are and I think light-skinned and I mean, if you're white passing, you're just white, okay? Like, <laughs> I'm just going to say that. <laughs> but, like, I think that in particular, like, we need to be very critical of how we analyze our privilege. And I would say when you're analyzing it, just err on the side of assuming that you have privilege in a situation. I think is probably the best way to go with that. 
Yeah, I think I'm. <laughs> I think I'm still working through it. I'm still having a lot of conversations about this, and I haven't come to any conclusions yet. But yeah, um, especially this time has <laughs> has inspired me to have a lot of internal conversations and conversations with other folks because, I mean, growing up in Arizona, I think it is very common to, or anywhere in Latin America, I mean, there's a lot of light-skinned Latinos, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that's something mm-hmm. that people here in Washington are not used to, uh, and I'm not used to people not being used to light-skinned Latinos. <laughs> 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 So, yeah, it's an ongoing conversation. (laughs) Yeah, no, for sure. Okay, well, we've been chatting for about an hour. And I had one or two questions that I wanted to ask, but also just wanted to do a time check with you and see how you felt and if you felt like we haven't covered anything that you wanted to talk about. Yeah, I don't think there was anything else. Okay, if you want, I can just ask the last question and then we can sign off. Sure. Okay. So in the preface, the authors talked about how it's difficult to conduct oral histories like this when the government has repressed memory in such a toxic way. And as such, there's no way to create a definitive narrative of events. What is your reaction to this limitation? Well, I kind of feel there's no way to create a definitive narrative of any event because it's all based on somebody's perspective or multiple people's perspective. And I mean, I appreciate that this this book really pieces together multiple perspectives that have not been talked about before but I mean there's always going to be some sort of filter because we all see things differently and experience them differently yeah the author said that at the very least the image is bent but I appreciated the work anyway and I think Especially because the the Salvadoran government is not doing an intentional job or could ever do a good job of properly archiving all of these leftist movements that have been in opposition to it. And so really, if you're going to tell these stories, it's kind of like, what other way to tell them? Is there except through oral history? And yes, people's memories will be fragmented. We will have to deal with the fact that they're remembering things after the fact and all the things that that implies for accuracy. But when we're not being archived in the National Archives, this is the only way to tell our stories. And I think oral histories has has long been a really important part of people of color's lives. And this is just another example of it. That's a great conclusion. Thank you, friends. <laughs> okay, so I also wanted to bring back recommendations where, sorry to spring this on you, <laughs> where I, yeah. I like, where we both recommend either a movie, a book, a person, a TV show, a piece of art, an Instagram that you have been really vibing with lately and that you newly just newly come across. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can I can go first. Give me some time to think about it. Please. <laughs> okay, so I have been watching Sex Education on Netflix. And it's a British show, which I really don't normally find British humor funny. Like, tried watching The British Office, had no idea where the joke was supposed to be in any of that first episode. But sex education, um, I do find very funny. And the character is very endearing as well, because it's focused on these high school students. And the, but it's 
I, I think it's it's nice. It's a nice high school story because it actually tells the stories of queer characters of color and it deals with class and gender in a way that I think is very real. And particularly, I really appreciate Eric's character. He is the child of African immigrants living in the UK and finding, you know, just finding his own sexuality and... I just was really empowered seeing him be like a queer kid of immigrant parents being like, fuck yeah, like this is how I'm going to go to the dance in my makeup, in my drag, fucking deal with it. <laughs> and and I think, I, yeah, I think it's, it's like a very real and honest portrayal of young people figuring out sexuality for themselves. So I recommend it. It has two seasons on Netflix and I'm currently like halfway through the second season. That's awesome. So I really am not big on TV, um, but Admirable. I have been watching this. <laughs> I have been watching this really trash show called. <laughs> it's called Nosferatu. What is um, Nosferatu? Oh, okay, Nosferatu. Okay. And unfortunately, it's on Amazon Prime. Mm. But I think there's other ways of obtaining it, which I will not share here. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck Um, Jeff Bezos. Find the alternative, people. (laughs) But it's just, yeah, I think the it's produced by somebody who's related to Stephen King, so it's like thriller, Mm. sci-fi, and uh, yeah, I don't know really how else to describe it. all over the place uh, but it's a great distraction especially uh, right now where I feel like I've just been really mentally exhausted I agree that's why I like sex education too because like this little these high schoolers in this little British town are so far removed from me that it's it's a little escape every time I watch their world definitely <laughs> <laughs> oh, and I forgot to ask you what you were drinking during this fine light review. Oh my gosh, I was drinking water. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I I have been really tired, so I knew that if I actually drank an alcoholic beverage, I would probably fall asleep. <laughs> and I need to stay hydrated. Um, yes, it's we're we're going through a heat wave right now. And I do think do that think- you can be lit off of water. This is true. <laughs> what were you drinking? Champagne. <laughs> yeah. My other guilty pleasure, don't fucking judge me, people, is Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. And oh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I like drinking along with them, you know? So it's like every time they drink, I drink. And champagne is a really good drink to do with that. <laughs> If anyone needs a quarantine activity, you can try that out. (laughs) That's a great suggestion. (laughs) Okay, cool. So, Yesenia, thank you so much for coming on to the Lit Review. This was such an amazing conversation that we had. And I hope that I can convince you to keep coming on to the podcast. (laughs) Yes. Thank you so much. This was really fun. And I... Yeah, it's a really, it's really awesome. It's just, yeah, it's a really awesome experience as a Salvadoran to be able to have this space. Thank you so much for creating mm-hmm. this space for us and to be able to like use it to talk about our history. That's really awesome. Oh, thank you. Yeah, uh, this is. This project is what gives me joy, and I love learning about myself through this as well. For sure. All right. Bye, y'all. I do hope you continue to support the podcast. I hope that new folks 
join on as little as $3 a month, or you can give up to $10 a month. You can help make this podcast sustainable. A completely free way to support the podcast is to leave an Apple rating and review. Same on Spotify. My Spotify rap showed me that a ton of y'all really do share links to the episodes with your friends through DMs. And so please continue to do that because that's also the best way to gain more listeners to the podcast when you hear something you feel a friend of yours would benefit from listening. Podcasting is changing. It's feeling like it's a transition phase. I want to keep up with trends, including providing video content. The only way that I can do that is through the support of the patrons. It's really the only way that I've been able to ever produce any episodes of the podcast. It really is the patrons who have allowed me to even put out any of this content in the first place. I am committed to bringing you all this amazing content. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Bye.